Almighty God, we recognize that we have, many of us at least, have sat in this setting millions of times. We've heard many, many sermons. We've read your word over and over and over. And yet we pause this morning because we gathered to have a fresh encounter with you through encouragement, through song, and through your spirit colliding with your word in our hearts. That's why we're here. And I pray that you would do that, God. I pray that you would help us to not be so familiar with being able to open your word and read it that it doesn't grip us like it should. So captivate us this morning. God, captivate us with who you are. Help, help us, help my friends in this room to leave here today with just a greater vision and perspective of you. Help us to love you more and to want to live for you more and to trust you more as a result of this time together. And so do that work, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you'd open up to Genesis chapter 31. Genesis chapter 31. Genesis chapter 31 is a longer chapter. And I know we talk about how chapters are not inspired by God. Man put them there for different reasons. But this one seems to be helpful in the sense that I think chapter 31, in order for it to be understood, has to be read as a whole. So two weeks ago, Jordan preached on the first half. We're going to reread the first half, and I'm going to recap the first half so that we can see how it all fits together as a whole, how the first half helps us understand what's going on in the second half. It is longer, so Renee and Elspeth are going to split the chapter in half in hopes that it helps to keep us alert and awake this morning. Are you alert and awake this morning? I am currently addicted to Starbucks pumpkin spice cold brew. I don't even like coffee. And I can only drink half at a time. Well, the other half is almost gone for this morning. So I'm awake. So you've got to be awake. Be awake. If you need to stand up while they're reading, stand up. If you need to pinch yourself or shout amen at the good parts, do that. So stay alert. So Elspeth and Renee, come on up. I don't know who's reading first. You guys want to hold it or you want to stand it? Hold it. All right. So let's listen. Do whatever you've got to do to stay alert as they read to us Genesis chapter 31. Sorry, Renee. There we go. Okay. Chapter 31. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob. And I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. 
All the wealth that God has taken away from our Father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that, had, that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Paddan Aram, and go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Armenian, by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but he did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my lord be angry, for I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you, I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, by day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom I have borne? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, Gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Shahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, This heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore he named it Galid and Mizpah, for he said, The Lord watched between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. 
If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me? This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Jacob and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. This is the word of the Lord. God has been with you, and God will be with you. God has been with you. He has, and he will be with you. The God who is the creator, sustainer, and giver of all life has been with you, and he will be with you. The God who rules the heavens and the earth, and the galaxies, everything is under his command. He has been with you, and he will be with you. This is the lesson that Jacob learned as we turn the corner into this chapter. This is what God has put on his heart as he reflects on the past 20 years of his life. It is that God has been with him, and God will be with him. Look at verse 3. I, I hope it's circled In your Bible, it says this, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and your kindred, and I will be with you. Circle that. God will be with him. And then look down at verse 5, the end of verse 5. Jacob says these words, But the God of my father has been with me. So Jacob assesses his life. And he says, God has been with me. And God says, and I'm going to be with you in the days to come. It seems that with God's help, Jacob knew. that He finally believed and he loved and actually massaged, I think, deep into his soul, these two magnificent realities that God has been with him and God will be with him in the days to come. But what we need to notice when we read this passage is that the events of Jacob's last 20 years has not been a bunch of lollipops and roses, has it? It's been pretty messed up. In fact, look at verse 6 with me. Look what he says in verse 6, how he describes his situation. He says, You know that I have served your father, talking to his wives, with all of my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. Look over at verse 38. This is where he starts to go ballistic. He goes, he berates Laban. Look what he says, beginning in verse 38. He says, these 20 years I have been with you. Your hues and your female goats have not miscarried. And I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts, I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was by day, the heat consumed me and the cold by night and my my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages 10 times. Does that sound like God has been with me? Not to me, it doesn't. That doesn't sound at all like God has been with me. I mean, he's saying, look, Laban, you've been blessed by me. I didn't take a single ram for dinner from your flock. When a wild boar came or something came and ate one of your sheep, I bore the loss, sweat my butt off working for you all day, froze to death at night, served you seven years for one daughter, got tricked, waited seven days so I could marry the second daughter, and then I had to work another seven years for her. You randomly changed my salary 10 times over 20 years. That's every other year a salary decrease. I've been cheated. 
That does not sound to me like God has been with me. When I read that, I think it sounds like God has forgotten him. To me, that sounds like God is out to get him, not God is with him. So when you read the end of verse 41, these 20 years I have been in your house, I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times, I expect verse 42 to say, and life really sucked. That's what I expect to hear him say next. That was, this was terrible. But look at just the first part of verse 42. Look at how he concludes all of that. Verse 42. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side. He looks back on being treated in a horrendous way. And his conclusion is, God was on my side. He looks back on everything he experienced, and his conclusion is, God, God Almighty was on my side. Jacob looks back on 20 years, and that's his declaration. God has been on my side. So let's just bring this into our own world. How, how do you process this? How do I process this? Let's just be real. Let's get our little churchy time to the side for a moment and reflect on our past. Can you really say, oh, God has been with me. God has been on my side. I mean, when I look back on some of the things I have walked through, which are minor compared to the things many of you have walked through, whether it's emotional things or relational things or financial or health, I don't always conclude, oh, God was on my side. I don't. Just being honest, transparent. I don't always conclude, well, God has been with me. I'm guessing that for most of you, life at times has been really hard the last 20 years, if you've been alive that long, <laughs> which some of you haven't. But it can be hard. I mean, be real life can be confusing. I mean, you try to just think about this story, and I know some of us have different types of jobs, but in this case, imagine you work for someone for 20 years, and while you're working for them, people are stealing from the break room, and so you just keep replenishing it out of your own pocket. Projects at work go wrong, things get broken, and so what do you do? You stay late to fix it and use your own money to buy the parts to fix whatever is broken. The AC doesn't work, but you stay all day anyway and sweat to death, and then you work nights, double shifts, not even getting paid just to try to keep the company afloat. You, you keep working and working and working, and the whole time, every other year, your boss comes and says, I'm cutting your pay again. Two years later, cutting your pay again. For 20 years, you're paid to keep getting cut. And, and that's your last 20 years, not to mention being tricked into marrying the wrong person. And your conclusion is, God has been with me. God is on my side. Wow, Jacob, there's a man of faith, I think, that I see, and it exceeds mine. Over the past month, I have been um, feeding my soul with Hebrews chapter 2. And I want to take you there because I think it's not linked directly. In other words, there's nowhere in Genesis I go, oh, look, what's happening here is related to Hebrews. But it's related thematically in a way that I think is very helpful. Um, you don't have to turn there. It's going to go up on the, on the wall. But I want you to follow along here, because I think if Jacob were here today preaching, or if he were in your group of three, I wonder if he would go here to describe how does he get where he gets? How does he go through what he goes through and then say, God is on my side, and I wonder if this is helpful. The first three lines there are, a, are poetry. It's taken from Psalm 8. David wrote them, and it says this, you, meaning God, made him for a little while lower than the angels. Now, it's got to pause. We're going to spend a couple minutes here. I hope that's okay. This is like my pastoral privilege <laughs> to go places where not necessarily the text is taking us, but I think God wants us to go to help us understand. So the word him there, you see, you, you made him. You're going to see the word him and his in this. And some theologians say that the him and the him, his are referring to people, to man, mankind. And some say, no, it's referring to Jesus. And then some say when David wrote it, he was talking about men, but there was this messianic promise in. In other words, it was foreshadowing something to come, meaning Jesus would fulfill that. 
And I, I believe here in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is using this to do both. He's painting a picture of, for us of how life is for us as humans and what it's like was like when Jesus came. So I think, it's, I think this is like a transition from it's not just about man, but it's about Jesus too. So here's what he says. You made him, Jesus, for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. So everything is under the subjection, the authority of Jesus. And then he says at the end of the poetry, now he is a commentator for us. He's preaching to us. He says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. So there is just some really good news there, right? Everything is under Jesus' control. Everything is in subjection to him. There's nothing that's outside of his control. He rules everything in the universe from the greatest event in history to a sparrow dying on the side of the road. Everything is in subjection to him. And then look at what he says next. This is the, this is the dilemma of our lives right here. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Do you live there ever? We love the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. I do. He's in charge of everything. I don't ever have to worry about what's going to happen to me tomorrow. It's all from God's hand. Whatever it is, I can receive it and say, God, you are in control. No man is in control. Ultimately, your sovereign plan will come true for me, and I can trust you for that. But then there's times at present where it doesn't seem like everything's in subjection to him. There's times where I look at life and I go, really? Really? God, are you really in control? Jesus, is everything really, really in subjection to you? Nothing is outside of God's control. Right now, it seems like everything is outside of God's control. Everything is in subjection to Jesus. Sure feels like nothing is in subjection to Jesus. You ever feel that way? I, I, I've had it out with God in the last month where I've said to God, God, why don't you do something? You ever said that? God's a big boy. He can take it. And he already knows you're thinking it. So tell him, God, you can change hearts. God, you're in control of everything. Why aren't you doing anything? That's the dilemma of this. I know everything is in subjection to you. Everything is. Nothing is outside of your control, but at present, I don't see it. And I think that's where Jacob lived, but Jacob turned a corner. We'll go back to that in a minute. But what do we do? What do you and I do when we know and we believe and we're grabbing a hold of God is sovereign, but it doesn't seem like it? God's in control, but eh, it doesn't feel that way right now. Well, look what the author of Hebrews does for us. At present, we do not yet see everything in, subjected to him, in subjection to him, but we see him. In other words, take your eyes off of all the things that don't see like they are in subjection to him, and what do you do? Where do you look? You look to him. Not just generically, but look where he tells us to look. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Oh, this is where the disadvantage of jumping into the middle of a book of the Bible stinks. <laughs> That's the first time in the book of Hebrews where the name of Jesus is mentioned. The very first time. This is in chapter 2. And so the, it's almost like the author is building the whole book so far. The first chapter into the second chapter, building it to this crescendo, making us wonder, who is this person, although we already know. And then he gets here and he says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the sufferings of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So where do we go when we believe everything is in subjection to him, but we look at the details of our lives and go, it doesn't seem that way. What do you do? You look to him. You look to Jesus. 
And when you look to him, you specifically look at the one who tasted death for you. That's where we draw the confidence. That's where the power is, right? I mean, it's in the gospel. It's in the reality that he tasted death for me, so they know that he's for me. I know that if the father would not spare his only son for me, then certainly he's going to do all the good things that need to happen in my life. It's where we get the confidence to trust him when it seems like things are completely out of control, even out of his control in our daily life. So we look to him. Listen, this is where you got to go. And if we're either post cruddy experience, in the cruddy experience, or heading for a cruddy experience. (laughs) Happy Sunday. It's true, though. It is. And if you don't have somewhere, some objective place in God's word to grab a hold of, when all the stuff happens in life, you will be crushed. It'll be so much harder. So find somewhere. Find the promise in God's word about Jesus and the gospel. Something like this. So that when it happens, you already have this reservoir of truth and faith. Even if it's a small reservoir, something in there that makes you go, okay, here's where I'm going when life doesn't go like it should go. Because it's going to go where it shouldn't go at some point. It's headed there. And so the author of Hebrews is very quick to tell us, you've got to look to him. You've got to look to him. Don't let the objective, your objective your subjective evaluation of your current or past experience dictate where your heart goes. You've got to go to the objective truth of who Jesus is and what he has done for you if you're going to find any stamina to make it through the trials and the problems of life. So interpret your past and your current undesirable situations through the lens of the gospel. Do it, do it, do it. Jacob, he didn't have all of this, right? He didn't, he didn't know the gospel. He didn't know Jesus was coming. But what does he say? He still says, God has been on my side. And in verse 42, I love what he says there. He says, God saw me in my affliction. Do you see that in verse 42? That's another circle moment. I want to circle these things that Jacob believes about God because I need to believe them when my life goes in the direction like Jacob's life just went. I need that. And so what he's saying in verse 42, he says, God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands. God saw. So now we've got this building theology of God. God has been with Jacob. God has been on Jacob's side. God saw Jacob's affliction. I mean, there's three phrases right there that can sustain you through a trial. Or at least help you stay alive through a trial. (laughs) God has been with me. God has been on my side. God saw my affliction. Look, we so desperately need the Spirit's help so that this is not just head knowledge. We so desperately need the Spirit to make us really believe and love and and grab a hold of those three realities that he has been with you, that he's on your side, that he sees your affliction, and that he will be with you in the days to come. So this morning, just application, pretty obvious, low-hanging fruit here. Where, where is the focus of your heart when you consider the last five years or 10 years or 15 years or 20 years? Are you more aware of all the ways you've been wronged or all the hurts? Or are you aware that God has been on your side? That sounds very black and white, doesn't it? You know it's not. You know it's not. It's not that black and white. Sometimes I wish it was that black and white. I know those questions are hard to think through. When I look back on my last 20 years, do I really think God was on my side? And those are the kind of questions that are really hard to process on your own. They are. That's what groups of three are for. That's what community group is for. That's what friendships are for. That's what Tyler Jordan and I are here for, to help you think through the events of your past and how they're affecting your current situation, your current perspective of things that are going on. And I want to encourage you with this. Jacob here is referring to the past 20 years. That means it's been a long time since the trickery. He's had 14 years to process some of this stuff. God's patient. He's patient. So if right now you're thinking, man, when I think about my last 15 years, 20 years, I don't think God was with me at all. You need to know that God is very patient. 
he is very patient and that he understands and that he wants to help you, most likely through others, to help you to have his perspective of your past. So there it is. God is with you. He has been with you. He's by your side. He sees you in your suffering. And I believe all these are true for us. We could go to the New Testament and find passages to back all of these up, all linked to Jesus and what he's done for us. And I'm reviewing all this because I think this sheds light on the next half of the story. I mean, what is up with this God-stealing? What do we do with some of this stuff in this chapter, the rest of this chapter? So what I want to do is finish up here by walking through joining Jacob and Leah and Rachel and their families as they flee from Laban, as they run from Laban. So look at verse 19 with me. Look at verse 19. It says, Laban had gone to shear his sheep. Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by, telling, by not telling him that he intended to flee. And he fled with all that he had and rose and crossed the Euphrates. So here we go. We've got this mass exodus, right? Jacob, everything he has, leaving as fast as he can from his father-in-law, Laban. I don't know if you caught it, but there's like this, this is an action drama. I mean, this is like one of those, the reader is supposed to be so engaged going, what the heck's happening? Like things are moving fast. And so the, the pace of this picks up really, really quick. Seven days You've got Laban chasing Jacob and all his family, right? You got the whole dun 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 dun. Oh, they're gonna catch him! Oh no, they're gonna catch him! Seven days of this, and then finally he he catches up to them. Laban does, and then on the way, Laban is warned by God, "Hey, be very careful what you do and say to Jacob. You watch yourself." Gives him a real stern warning, and then we get to verse twenty-six, and we listen to Laban. As he goes all Jekyll and Hyde. I mean, do you see the back and forths? I mean, the dude is like bipolar or something. I mean, he begins with, oh, why did you leave me without me knowing? I would have thrown you a party. To, I would harm you, and I'd love to do it right now. But God warned me in a dream that I shouldn't harm you. But you took my gods, and you're going to die for it. I mean, the guy's just swinging back and forth. And then we get to watch the slow motion as Laban searches the tents for his gods. I mean, the story is just it's perfectly written. First, he goes to Jacob's tent. And of course, we're the reader. We know the inside scoop, right? So what are we doing the whole time? We're waiting for him to go into whose tent? <laughs> Rachel's. Yeah, so the author just teases us along, gets us, gets us engaged. Jacob's tent, nothing there. Leah's tent, nothing there. Two female servants' tents, nothing there. Lastly, enters Rachel's tent, and we hold our breath. Because if he finds it, Jacob said she needs to die. So we're wondering if this is the end of Rachel. Because she's got it. How is she going to hide it from him? Oh, she's got a trick up her sleeve. And it's a good one. right? She takes the camel's saddlebag, I guess, off of her donkey. Gods are in there. They're, they're little figurines. If you, Hebrew, from what I understand, there's little people, like little Barbie dolls. Only probably not made out of rubber or plastic. <laughs> but there's little metal gold, you know, pocket gods. She sticks them in her saddlebag. She goes into her tent. She puts them on the ground. She sits on them. So when he comes in, he can't find them. And then she knows there's certain things she can say to her father, and her father will never ask follow-up questions. <laughs> and so that's where she goes, and he ain't asking nothing. I wondered if I should have a side conversation over here with all the dads, just for a moment. Growing up with four sisters and having three daughters, if you need help with that, let me know. <laughs> I've learned a few things the hard way that I would love to share with you at some point. But what do we, what do, we do with this story? I, I scratch my head going, what the heck? Like, really? Does this really matter? He doesn't? He doesn't find anything, and then Lab or Jacob goes ballistic. I mean, he just loses it. Basically, 20 years of pent-up frustration, and he blasts Laban. I mean, like, you did this, and you did that, and you're a jerk. And just, I mean, he just crushes him with just all the stuff that was stored up from all those years. But what do we do? Why does she steal these gods? 
Well, there's, there's answers different theologians give. Some it's, well, he just wanted to tick off her, she just wanted to tick off her dad. I'm just going to tick him. I'm going to take something of his. Some say it's because verse 14 tells us that he had basically spent their inheritance. So she's like, I'm going to take some of this stuff for my inheritance. I'm going to steal from you. Some think that this whole idea of this God could have revealed to Laban where they had escaped to. The whole divination thing that we read about in the last chapter, she was like, hey, he's going to find us more easily, so I'll steal the gods. The problem we have with this whole thing is that Rachel doesn't tell us why she stole them. Jacob doesn't tell us why. Moses, the author, doesn't tell us why. No New Testament writer tells us why. And God doesn't tell us why. So we don't know why. When that happens, I often think, okay, then I must be asking the wrong question. (laughs) The question isn't, why did she steal? But the question is, why did Moses record this here for us? Why did God have Moses record this here for us? It seemed like this could not be in my Bible and it wouldn't matter. Just a silly story about a bunch of gold gods being sat on. I mean, come on. But I think there's an answer. And I think the answer is that the story, this story of Jacob and, or this story of Laban and his gods, is on the heels of what we just studied, learned together, about Jacob and his gods. I think this is a compare and contrast. In other words, what do we know about Jacob's God? And let me tell you some things about Laban's God. And let's compare and contrast the two and see which God you want as your God. And I think that's what's going on here. In fact, I think the whole chapter begins with this comparing and contrasting thing to sort of set, sort of set the stage. I don't know if you caught it, but look at verse 1. I'm going to read a couple verses. Look at the, how many times the word father is used. It seems like this chapter begins, this scene begins with Jacob talking about the difference between his father-in-law's, father-in-law, Laban, as compared to the God of his fathers. So look at the play back and forth, verse, 30, verse 1. Now, Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. And then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your father's and your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah and fled where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You see what he's doing? There's this play on father back and forth. It's this comparing and contrasting between these earthly, this earthly father and the God of his father's. So the contrast, the comparing contrast begins there just to kind of set the stage to get us thinking so that we'll look for, oh, let's, let's compare these two gods. And so let's do that. Let, let's, let's compare the two gods. Let's compare and contrast them. What do we know about Laban's God? Okay, so let's, let's interact for a moment. Laban's God was stolen. What else do we know about Laban's God? He's tiny, he's small, both figuratively and he's false. He has no power. How do we know he has no power? Yeah, it's the first God napping. If your God can be napped, then he ain't much of a God. He can be hidden. And what else can happen to him? He can be sat on. (laughs) And there's more than one of them. So I don't know how many she took, but obviously, I don't know, they're in competition for who's top dog. I don't know. So you, so you, you read all this and you go, okay, you've got Laban's God. He's a pocket God. He's a God that can be stolen, lost, and sat on. He's a God that needs to be searched for because we don't know where he went. And then we're supposed to contrast this with everything we just saw about Jacob's God. What God told us about God, that God is with Jacob, that God has been on Jacob's side, that God saw Jacob's affliction, that God is with Jacob. See, the The comparison is crazy. Jacob's God spoke to Laban. Right now, Laban's God is silent. He's not responding at all. Recently, my kids bought me an iWatch, and I like it. Is that what it's called? Apple Watch? Whatever. Don't laugh at me. (laughs) 
The best feature on my watch is that when I can't find my phone, I can do this little ditty, and I can find it. Only if his God had that. Right? He could have walked from tent to tent. Bing, 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 bing. This guy doesn't do that. So here's Jacob's God speaking to Laban while Laban's God is silent. Jacob's God is with Jacob. Laban's God is lost. Jacob's God sees Jacob. Laban's God didn't see his own abduction coming. Jacob's God is by Jacob's side while Laban's God is under Rachel's butt. I think it's supposed to be funny. I think it's supposed to alert us to the ridiculousness of having a God that can fit in your pocket. It's supposed to wake us up. And to realize you've got choices to make. Which God do you want? The God of Laban or do you want the God of Jacob? So listen, if your God fits in your pocket, he's no God at all. If he can be lost, he's no God at all. If he can be stolen, he's no God of all. If he can be sat on, then he's not a God at all. And I know this is where application can go weird because you're thinking, Matt, it's the year 2022 and nobody carries gods around in their pockets anymore. Mm. Mm. So let's just take a second and think about our hearts because that's really what's important. It's about our hearts. Laban had a pocket God that it seems he went to when he needed answers to questions. He didn't go to God himself, but he would go to this idol, to this other place to get answers to his questions, to find comfort when he needed comfort. It gave him security. Maybe it was a place he turned when he faced an issue or a trial. He'd whip out his pocket God and try to get answers. Maybe it's health issues. I don't know. Financial issues. But where did he turn? Laban, we know. He turned to an idol, to a pocket God. And, and where do we turn when we find ourselves anxious. All right, so I'll just be personal, and then you can take this wherever you want to go with it. But when your daughter, let's just say, supposedly, is out late, and you don't know where she is, just suppose it. Where, where, where do you go, dads, moms? Do you go to your knees and say, God, I need you to protect and be with my daughter? Be with her. Or do you go to your Life360 pocket app? Yeah. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong, because it's not. (laughs) Not that you've ever stayed up more than you should have. But the point is your heart. No, it's where's your impulse? In in my life today, my impulse is not, God's got this. It's, how can I find out where she is? How can I find the answer? Rather than trusting in God. And there's hundreds of examples like that. I mean, from, from everything from when I find out I have a health issue, where do I turn first? Do I want to find the answers on WebMD or do I want God to be involved? Impulse, immediately, where does your heart go? And that's what God wants. He wants our hearts to go to him and to turn to him as the one and only God and not to turn quickly to where we think the world's answers might be for us. So I think the pocket God thing is more real than maybe we first thought it could be. Look, I don't know what kind of trials or struggles you walk through, and I don't know where you turn. I know some of us turn to sleeping all the time. We can turn to entertainment or just being busy. Just find stuff for me to do because I can't take the heat that I'm living in or the trial I'm walking through. Some people drink and drink too much. Some people shop. It's going to buy stuff. It just helps keep me sane. Maybe it's Netflix, watching as much as you can in a short amount of time. I don't know where we go, but just I think it's good for us to evaluate our hearts and ask, where do I go? Where do I turn? And is it to God? Is it to Jacob's God? Or is it to Laban's God? Is it to the real God? Is it to a God that's made up and doesn't really exist and will never produce what I need anyway? So I think chapter 31, these stories are placed back-to-back in parallel to help open our eyes to see the radical difference between our God, who I know we love and want to turn to, and all the other gods that grab our attention day in and day out. All the other places we can go to rather than turning to our God. So I think God wants us this morning to look back on our last 
20 years and declare, God has been with me. God has been on my side. I have lived in the goodness of God. God saw my every tear and trial and sickness and loss. There may have been times when it seemed like everything was out of his control, but I believe it was under his full, good, loving hand. So I think there's an application for us this morning that I'd like to encourage us to do. And that is for us to spend some time this week. Yes, I just told you to spend some time doing something this week in your long list of things to do this week. But what if we all spend some time this week recounting the last 20 years, searching for the goodness of God, Maybe some of us have to reinterpret our past a little bit. And I'm not saying you're going to look at every event and go, oh, God was so good there, because you may not be able to say that. But is there a place for us to follow Laban, Jacob, sorry, to follow Jacob and to say, I want to look back on my last 20 years, the good and the bad. And is there any way that some of the things that I in the past would have said God wasn't there, that now when I look back on them and I see God's hand in the whole process, I go, wow, God was with me. Can I give you one? You are here today because God is with you. Because I know that some of you have been through stuff and are going through stuff right now that you very easily could say, I am done with God. God didn't come through. God didn't help. God didn't save. God didn't rescue. And you could say, peace out. I'm done. And that'd be very easy to do. So the reality that you're in this room this morning is one evidence God has been with you for the past 20 years. I know it's more generic, but it's true. It's true. I would not be here. No way in hell would I be here. (laughs) Except for God being with me. Except for God seeing me in all my mess and all my straying, I wouldn't be here. And so maybe we need to do a little reevaluating of our past, or maybe just in perspective, ask the Spirit to help us to see where, God, were you? I want to see where you were. I need to see where your hand was. I need to see how you were with me. I need to see how you were good. And I believe that if we do this, we take some time to do this, that it could bring some healing that will help you to really believe God will be with me. Because how you see your past is going to reflect on how you see your future. If you believe God was with you, then it's going to impact how you see tomorrow. But if you're living today knowing, I don't think God was with me through any of that, well, then that's going to impact how you think about tomorrow. And so maybe some of us this week can spend some time just thinking about the past and going, how is God with me? Where was he at work? Have I missed God's hand in some ways where he was working and doing things that I didn't see? I know 20 years is a long time. Maybe some of us need to go back a little less or a little further. But I think it's important for us to stop and recognize that God was with you. He was with you every second of your last 20 years. Every second. If I did my math right, that's 630 million seconds and some more. It's a lot of seconds. Every second of your last 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years, he's been with you. He has, and he will be with you. Let me pray for us. Spirit, we, we so much need your help so that we can somehow process our past like Jacob did. God, we have more data. We know Jesus, and that helps us, but we are weak Many of us in this room, life has been very hard. Many of us have barely gotten through some of the struggles and trials and pain of the past. And it's hard for some to see where you were with them through certain things. And so, Spirit, I, I pray that you would use this week to help my brothers and my sisters, my friends, help them open their eyes to see things maybe they haven't seen before of how you were with them, how you did see them in their suffering, how you did walk with them, how you did carry them along. 
Oh God, I, I pray you would do that. And I pray that by doing that, there would be a sense in which some in this room would even be set free from their past. Maybe there's something in their past that's just tying them up, bringing them down, making it very hard for them to walk in faith with you for the future. And so I just pray for little glimpses of your hand, open eyes, open hearts to see what you've done, how you've been there, how you've walked with them, how you've been by their side through terrible and hard and challenging times. Show them, God, how you were there. And, and Father, I, I know that this is not the kind of thing we often can do alone very easily, and so I pray you'd help my friends to be able to share these types of things with their friends. Help them to share them with their group of three and with their spouse or their kids or whoever it is, God, their friends, in a way that would help them to process their past in a healthy way, in a way that has you in the picture, maybe in places where right now you're not in the picture. God, we believe that you are nothing like any other lowercase God. You're nothing like them. We believe that you know all, that you are sovereign, that all things are under your control, all things are in subjection to you. And yet you know and we know there are times where we don't see it that way. Help us, I pray. Help us to see it that way conform our hearts so they're in line with the reality of truth. What's true. So move us along in the process, I pray. Move us along in trusting you more and loving you more. Having faith that you've got our tomorrow in, in your hands. And do that by helping us to make sure we see our past in a way that is right and true. So meet us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing a song together.